Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. It is week two of our new normal. Uh, we are continuing to podcast while wearing hazmat suits and... <laughs> As per protocol, I will incinerate my microphone and headset after this and uh, bury the ashes in the lead-lined vault. Um, but you know what? I actually did come to a realization the other day, by the way. So it's still pretty cold here. But we did have a brief warm spell for a day or so earlier in the week. And so I was able to self-isolate on my front porch. Yeah. And, uh, and I realized as I watched the sort of scaled-down version of the world going by that there is one sector of society for whom this pandemic is the greatest thing ever. Dogs! Mm, like, yes. not only are there humans around the whole time, but you could just tell that after a few days of <laughs> working at home and being stuck with each other, family members can't wait for the next <laughs> opportunity to take poor old Fido for a walk. <laughs> I'm like, dog historians will bark about this as the greatest of all times, I think. But, wait, I dog mean, historians meaning historians who study dogs or dogs who are historians? I want to clarify what you mean by oh, dog historians. Oh, I'm, I'm specifically talking about historians who are canines. It's okay, a thing. gotcha. Okay. It's a thing. <laughs> what do you think they're talking about when they're barking at each other later? at night it's like it's like norse sagas right it's not just random barking you know <laughs> okay if you say so, so so anyway apparently i am a little bit been self-isolating a little bit too long so um <laughs> so that's how i've been coping how about you how are you doing i'll first i'll note that uh otis raskin uh will confirm what you said he is getting more <laughs> exercise and attention than he is used to uh typically so uh yeah and yes uh, as the humans who live with otis raskin we do almost we're almost fighting over who gets to walk him sometimes <laughs> um but uh yeah you know otherwise getting by kind of uh adjusting to this new normal which as we discussed is less of an adjustment for you and i than for a lot of people um i know i know that a lot of people have been talking about this opening up tons of new time to binge watch tv and movies um i had hoped that might be the case because i do love tv and movies I'm not finding myself with as much time to binge stuff as people who live alone might. Uh, speaking to a certain someone, uh, th there's a certain expectation that I will step up and be a present husband and father. Uh, but uh, I did end up doing some extra full family viewing this week. I'll tell you uh, a little about our, our, our movie nights. We had two of them. Uh, we we're looking for family appropriate films. We ended up watching one new movie and one older movie. Uh, the new movie was Yesterday, the movie from last year about the guy waking up in a world oh, without right. the Beatles. I, I get. I'm I taking from your. It. Okay, that's what I was going to say. From your response, sounded like you hadn't seen it. Um, it's all right. It's it's huh. it's it's not a must see, but it's perfectly enjoyable. It's a a fun concept adequately executed um and i'm generally game for anything beatles uh, so kind of a, a lukewarm recommendation there and then the older movie uh which i loved when it came out but hadn't seen in nearly 30 years defending your life ever seen that no i don't think i've even heard of it so it's albert brooks and meryl streep i think 1991 written and directed by albert brooks about a uh, guy who guy who dies and goes to the afterlife uh, where he goes on to uh, they, they try to determine whether he can move on to the next step or go back to Earth reincarnated. And I managed to sell it to sell my daughter on it beforehand with it's a lot like the good place. Uh, so she gave it a shot. It was kind of a precursor of the general 
the, the general log line of the good place, kind of. And uh, it holds up pretty well. My, my wife had never seen it, actually, and she managed to guess a couple of plot points before they happened. But uh, all in all, everyone liked it, and a new generation of Raskins has been introduced now to the humor of Albert Brooks, a, a generation that previously nice. would only know him as the voice of Nemo's dad. <laughs> now now he's more than that. Uh, so, uh, so how about you? Watch anything good this week? Yes, actually. So um, starting in the before times, um, when things were still happy and and <laughs> we we could you know uh, hang out with each other, uh, a, a friend of mine in the village and I were sharing shows with each other that one of us had watched and one of us hadn't. Hmm. So prior to all this going down, it was my turn to share a show with her, and we binged Veep. Um, right. And then just before this all went down, we started to watch a show that she watched and loved and i'm in hindsight a little bit embarrassed to say that i hadn't seen before and you mentioned the good place um and it is mike Schur's first show parks and rec ah, which i'd yes. never actually Love watched it. yep um and i like i've managed to binge the whole the whole series watch the series finale on saturday morning mm. over coffee uh not only did i like find the whole thing like brilliantly drawn and superbly cast it was just laugh out loud funny yeah um i also was amused by how much crossover of talent there was to suddenly be like <laughs> oh look it's Derek. right <laughs> <laughs> um he obviously has an ensemble that he likes to call on and um and look you and i both like loved the good place finale and it was interesting to me like how given how many shows really struggle to stick that final landing he's two for two I mean, yeah. I loved the series finale of Parks and Rec as well. I thought it was brilliantly done. Yeah. So that's that's what I've been doing. Yeah, and I'm not sh- I'm not sure whether he had any role in the Office finale because he was a writer, but not the showrunner okay. of the Office. Uh, that was another show that had an excellent right. finale. Um, so uh, yeah, he's he's good at this stuff. Mike Mike sure is very clearly the number one sitcom mind of of this generation because he yeah. also brooklyn 99 is partially his so oh, right. uh, yeah. so uh yeah uh I'm, i've been trying to get my kids to binge parks and rec maybe uh maybe that'll come up next for them yeah i i really i i thoroughly loved it and it, i'm a little disturbed to find out at times how like ron swanson i am but apart from <laughs> You are kind of Ron Swanson now that you mentioned it. Aside, aside from all the meat products he enjoys, right, and the sort of anti-governmentness, but yes, they had the whole the whole privacy and self-reliance. And please don't tell me your problems. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, this was this was fun. I, I presume uh, we'll both be watching TV shows and movies uh, every week for a while. So, uh, so what 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 do you say we make this a regular thing? Spend a minute or two each week uh, on on what we're watching. Yeah, that sounds like. Uh, yeah, things Eric and Kieran have watched. I, yeah. I don't think we will struggle to fill that segment. <laughs> I don't think so. And I yeah. have to say, Kieran, if we get to the end of this coronavirus chapter in our lives and you still haven't started Breaking Bad, I'm going to be personally <laughs> offended. I just want to put that out there. That's right. It'll be 51st on my list of 50 things to watch. <laughs> Great. Here we go. <laughs> just as a matter of principle. I'm not sure what that principle is. <laughs> but Spice spiting me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, so, yes, as well as watching various movies and TV, we are, of course, continuing to uh, try and keep up with such news as there is in the world of boxing. And we will be doing our best uh, every week on the podcast to filter our look at the boxing landscape through this ongoing wider world of weirdness. Um, and right now we're going to uh, do that with a guest as we bring on to help us try to figure our way through the hellish dystopia that is the new normal of everyday life, 
the Showtime President of Sports and Event Programming, Stephen Espinosa. So, Stephen, thank you for joining us. And as you can tell, absolutely no pressure with this interview at all. I was going to tell you, that, that sounded like a lot of pressure if I'm going to help <laughs> the current state of the world. Uh, I'm going I'm to need a few more weeks to prepare. <laughs> we, should, we should back down from, from help to just uh, try not to make it worse during the course of this interview. There you go. There you go. Still a big and, ask. And I appreciate you guys for giving me something to do today while I'm locked in the house. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, so, look, Stephen, first of all, the most important question. How are you? Uh, how are your family and loved ones? How's the team? How's our sort of extended family at Showtime Sports doing? Um, you know, all good. A lot of adjustments, a lot of, of video conference calls. Um, you know, from a, you know, first a personal perspective, you know, um, uh, I think so far, knock on wood, you know, everyone you know, seems good. And um, I'm sure that can change any minute. You know, personally, my family's fine. Um, it's a little strange, you know, personally, it's sort of like every time you've got a little sniffle or a cough, you sort yeah. of, you know, start second guessing yourself. Yeah. So, but, um, look, there, there are certainly people are having a much more difficult time than, uh, than myself. So, um, look, it's, uh, strange times indeed. How, yeah. how about you guys? Pretty much the same with the emphasis on the strange times. And I definitely yeah. had that as well. I was, I was in Boston the week before, everything sort of went pear-shaped and when after about 10 days i thought i felt my grant my gland swelling in my neck i'm like oh my god that's it shut down but um but yeah, yeah it's it's weird new normal. Yeah, the new normal yeah well, i guess all we can hope for is that this new normal ends in relative relatively soon and we switch back to the old normal before too long but i guess that's sort of the 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 question on everyone's mind and sort of the that whole fear of the unknown aspect that is uh, mm. looming over all of this and making it a lot harder for us it's um you know it's going to be nice to get back to you know uh, bitching and complaining about the things that we all <laughs> exactly. exactly there you go yeah. <laughs> hashtag trivial concerns 2020 right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what is, what is the present state of play in terms of the Showtime boxing schedule? I, I believe everything that had been on the schedule through April is presently postponed. Is Claressa Shield still tentatively set for May 9th? And, and if so, what's your level of optimism for that fight happening on that date? You know, in, uh, in the abstract, you know, we, we went with the wave of everyone sort of uh, canceling everything through the end of, of April. Um, Technically, anything beyond April is still an option, uh, or at least technically still uh, still alive, so to speak. Um, and again, not that I know anything more than anybody else, but you know, personally, I, it would seem you know pretty unlikely that we're getting back to normal May 9th or you know mid May or or whoever. Um, so I think really the, the best thing is what, you know, our schedule is, is sort of suspended indefinitely. And, um, then it begins the conversation about what are the kinds of things that need to happen for the sport to become active again. And when all of this sort of happened, um, it really, it was sort of, I guess like Wednesday, the 11th was really when everything in the U S the UK and a lot of Europe really sort of moved to another level. You know, the NBA and the NHL postponed seasons, Premier League and the UEFA Champions League were postponed. We had Top Rank initially saying that some boxing cards were going to be behind closed doors and then they were cancelled. And while all of this is going down, you're two days out from the scheduled show box card. And I imagine 
you must have gone through a full gamut of all kinds of possible options. Everything must have been completely crazy as you try to figure out what to do. You ended up going ahead with the card behind closed doors, but walk us through those couple of days and what on earth must have been happening there. Sure. Um, well, it, it, it started really for me personally Wednesday night. Um, mm-hmm. And then myself and, and Brian Daly, who's our head of digital, who you guys know well, uh, having dinner with uh, Matt Barnes and Stephen Jackson from the uh, All the Smoke podcast. Right. Um, and then we started, you know, at dinner, you know, 7.30, 8 p.m. that night. Um, you know, we all started getting a sense of what was going on. As I got to dinner, I, I said to them, um, I, I just seen it on, on Twitter. I said, look, uh, something just happened in Oklahoma City. The thunder just got pulled off the floor seconds before tip-off, and no one understands. And then their phones, um, you know, with all their relationships across the NBA started going off. And it was a, it was a strange dinner, two hours, as we were finding out in real time what was happening. And Rudy Gobert, um, they had heard pretty early, was uh, someone who had tested positive. Um, and, you know, that's what essentially led to the, the Thunder Jazz uh, game. And that was uh, being canceled. And then that was really uh, the domino. That was the first domino. Right. And then certainly, you know, then the rest of the NBA follows and the NCAAs and so on and so on. And um, look, I think you, with respect to the show box, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right in the characterization. Um, you know, we were all over the place um, going back and forth in terms of what was, what was the right thing to do, what was the, um, the sort of the state of the art of the moment in terms of what people knew and what were the precautions to take. I'm not sure there was a, a, a good decision uh, in, in any case. Um, but, you know, one of the things that weighed heavily uh, in the decision was the fact that everybody was already on site and had been, you know, interacting uh, with each other for a couple right. of days. Mm. Um, you know, certainly if, for example, I would have been asking people to get on a plane at that point, right. it would have been a no-brainer. But, you know, at that point, again, right or wrong, it's not perfect. There certainly is, is risk uh, by going forward with the event. Um, but, you know, at that point, um, there's a conversation internally, you know, uh, including with, with our staff and freelancers, um, you know, giving the option, giving them the option to say they're not comfortable working. Um, you know, certainly you know what, what fighters are going to say. For the most part, we've seen that. Uh, across boxing, across MMA, and and I think that's largely uh, a function of, you know, it's a it's a, a strange income uh, creation pattern for 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 a fighter, a fresh out fighter. You've got, you know, three or four or five opportunities per year to to make some money, and there's such long preparation for the actual event itself. Um, I, I can see why, you know, getting skipping a paycheck may be well, you know, that's that's the last time they have that opportunity to get a check in for six, nine, 12 months. So the, the fighters are always going to say that they want to fight, and, and, and rightly so. I think most of us in those situations would, would feel the same pressures. But, you know, again, it, it seemed that at that point, uh, with everybody on site, everybody having been interacting with each other all week, um, you know, there, there certainly was was risk, but not a huge amount of incremental risk beyond what mm-hmm. the risk already was right. from being in the same site all week. Right. 
So now that the the card has happened and the broadcast has happened, what was your feeling on the atmosphere of a fight card with little to no live audience and the way that that came across on TV? Would you say that it was any more or any less of a distraction than you would have expected going in? Um, you know, I don't think so. I, it, it impacted um, a little bit less than, than I expected. You know, part of that mm. is the nature of the show box. It's a, it's a slightly smaller production in, in smaller venues. But the, the surprising and, and somewhat uh, you know, disappointing at the same time thing uh, was for that particular venue, um, there, I believe it, the capacity is around 2,000. They had sold about 1,700 seats. Mm. So it was, um, you know, that's a, that's a great response, you know, given sort of the size of the local population and where right. it was and the lack of, of regular boxing there. So, you know, that, that's, you know, it must have been a tough decision for the casino with that kind of response from the local community to, uh, to, to shut it down. Um, and then we adjusted the TV perspective to make it, you know, so we weren't looking like we were in an empty warehouse. <laughs> right. right. And I think it, it was less of an impact uh, than I thought. Um, you know, I've heard, you know, Brandon, most of the fighters said that they didn't really notice the difference. Um, you know, Brandon Lee said that, you know, he did notice a difference and he, uh, he could have used the energy and, and the, the adrenaline from, uh, from, from having the crowd behind him. But, but I think overall it felt more like a typical, usual boxing telecast than you, than, than something different. Right. Yeah, it seemed to me like there was just enough of an audience there to make noise when something significant happened that it after like a round or so of, of getting used to the quieter crowd, it started to sound pretty close to normal. You know, you, you start to um, uh, appreciate little things, you know, professionally speaking. And I, I think I believe the ring announcer is Thomas Schreiber. Yeah. Uh, and. You know, that's one, one time during the telecast that I did notice. Uh, because usually, you know, especially when you say it's time now for the main event, there's, you know, there's some enthusiasm, some response. And there's right. absolutely nothing <laughs> for the main event. It's just like crickets. Right. Um, so, it's, you know, you appreciate, you know, a, a professional like, uh, like Thomas, like, you know, guys like Ralph and Les, you know, who, um, you know, deliver that, that level of, of, of commitment and professionalism regardless of the surroundings yeah i i mean we've we've used i think already the the, the phrase you know strange times um but it can sort of it times it can feel sort of especially dissonant to be talking and thinking about sport in the middle of all this right i mean on the one hand it feels so trivial and unimportant and yet people are isolated they're bored they're miserable and they really like sport and having sport to watch is a really good thing when you're you know, you're in quarantine, you're self-isolating. So it's kind of, so I guess I have kind of a two-part of, the first part is a bit more of an existential question in that, do you ever also at times find yourself struggling with the relative importance of, of all of this, this, these things that we're doing? And, and also a, a more pra practical question, in the absence of, of some live programming, um, are there plans to fill the gaps with some shoulder programming, classic fights, whatever, uh, put some more stuff on our digital platforms, anything like that? Yeah, so um, in terms of the first question, you know, sure, look, um, there are times in, in quote-unquote normal life when <laughs> you know, things happen to make us all question of, uh, uh, you know, 
are the energy that we commit to the sport, you know, and relative to the other things that are happening in the world. And, and uh, I guess you could say that uh, about any sport. Um, but, look, the, the sport does deliver, um, you know, an income and, and a support system and, and a relief um, yeah. for, obviously, a lot of professionals, but a lot of, you know, people who, who, who take it, you know, professionally, amateurly, and, you know, and otherwise. So, yes, but, you know, particularly in this time, um, you know, when people are trying to figure out how to get food regularly and, you know, the, the amount of social isolation that's going on and the adjustment to life worldwide, um, it, it does sometimes feel strange to, you know, be having repeated conversations on a, on a daily basis about getting back on the schedule and what would need to happen in order for events to come back. But that's, that's what, you know, we have to do. I think, you know, if nothing else, it provides some sense of normalcy and some sort of light in the end of the tunnel that we all know that someday, some point, um, things are going to get back to normal, so to speak. Um, not that you know there, there may not be long-term uh, life-changing uh, repercussions of this. Uh, I'm not sure that life is going to be exactly the way it was before. Right. Uh, but I think it is therapeutic to be able to look forward to and make plans for things that are more reflective of normal life. Um, you know, for us, you know, absolutely, um, our goal is is to sort of fill that gap with. Um, with a lot of the stuff we have. I mean, we've got a, a deep library of documentaries. Um, we, are, we are definitely surfacing a lot more of the archive, both on demand and we'll, we'll look at it on linear, you know, more regularly. Um, and whether it's a programming slot in particular or, um, you know, sort of an occasional one. Um, the initial thing, and, uh, you know, this is not quite final, but if it, it, it works out this way, you guys will get the sort of scoop on it, so to speak. For March 28th, the first of our shows that was canceled, you know, that is typically a three-hour window for us. Um, you know, that's, that's what we allocate in, from a scheduling perspective um, to that. Um, and obviously, we have some replacement programming in case something goes short or long. But, you know, that's a, that's a nice opportunity for us. You know, you say, look, what, what's about three hours? And you say, well, we could do Marquez Vasquez uh, 1, 2, and 3. Mm. Uh, which, um, you know, I think, you know, the boxing fan will, uh, will appreciate, and it fills the hole nicely. And I think it, it, it provides probably a pattern for us going forward. I think we, you know, the boxing audience is definitely still very important to, uh, to Showtime, and uh, we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to continue to serve them um, to the maximum extent we can through the library or otherwise. Oh, cool. You got me a little fired up, but that's uh, that's a, <laughs> if, if you if you're gonna air something on that date, uh, that's a perfect trilogy to uh, to start with. Um, those are some of the the all-time classic Showtime bouts. Um, it's fair to say that we didn't get a ton of those in 2019. That 2019 was not exactly the year you would have wanted for Showtime boxing, but. 2020 was off to a solid start with, with plenty of cards and some good names. Clarissa Shield, Danny Garcia, Gary Russell, yet David Benavides scheduled in April. How much are you concerned this situation is, is likely to derail this momentum you had? And, and irrespective of the virus, what is your vision of, of how you want Showtime Boxing to survive and ideally thrive this year and in coming years? Well, it's really going to be... Um... Uh, an, uh, an interesting um, sports calendar, uh, sports environment, once we sort of 
get back in action. Um, again, not that I'm an expert. I know more than the next guy. Personally, I believe that we'll probably be, uh, be in some period of time in which you know, we're doing it in the absence of, of large crowds. Right. Um, I don't mm. know if that's, you know, a few months. I don't know if that's a year. Uh, you know, smarter people than that are, are, are at work at the problem. But um, I, I do think that, you know, maybe we'll be able to find a solution to have crowdless events uh, before we figure out the solution to have a full crowd there in the, mm. in the full view. Um, mm. So when that is, who knows? But once that starts to happen, there is a tidal wave of sporting events, you know, remain to be uh, rescheduled. Uh, look, the, the NBA, I know, has definite plans to reschedule relatively quickly. Uh, you know, from what I know, um, I don't see the NCAA tournament being rescheduled. No. Um, golf is rescheduled. Some of the events, um, you know, where hockey goes, you know, unclear. But at the end of it, there's going to be a massive rush in terms of television schedules, and venues. Um, it's going to be tough to get a venue if all these sports are <laughs> playing catch at the same time. Right. So it'll, it'll be a little bit strange, you know, going forward. But, um, you know, having said that, I, I think it, it's going to be sort of a, a wild bride because there's a lot, a lot that's sort of um, to be made up. There's a lot of fighters that, that need fights to happen. Um, and, and I think we could be in for a pretty uh, interesting period of time um, where I think there's a lot of activity in a relatively short window. Um, it's tough uh, for us competitively, you know, to be uh, in that window, T- tough for anyone in boxing to, to cut through the noise in a, in a crowded sports calendar. But I, I do think that um, I, I'm, I'm excited. I, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're going to see uh, a sort of action-packed, jam-packed schedule whenever we return, whether it's three months, six months, nine months. And, um, you know, we, we may see, you know, people taking a slightly different um, tack on taking fights, um, mm. you know, both because of, you know, uh, at, at some point, you know, guys get older. Um, and so going forward, um, you know, cautiously optimistic that we may be seeing uh, a, a lot of really good fights for the amount of time. Mm. And, we, and we, and sort of in that mix, obviously it's going to be Showbox. We were just talking, you know, about the Showbox event the other week. And it, it's, you know, even when there weren't so many big fights on the network last year, Showbox was still strong and it's off to a strong start again. Can you sort of encapsulate for us the importance of Showbox to that Showtime boxing brand? And, and who do you feel right now is perhaps the most likely to be making a leap from Showbox to SCB or to special edition level cards anytime soon? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's hard to sort of overstate the importance, I think, uh, to Showbox, to Showtime, and, and really uh, to the sport o- overall. Um, it is, you know, the only consistent uh, sort of breeding grounds and, and the consistent source for those up-and-coming prospects in, in tough fights. And, and it's been that way for a, a long, long time. And it, it is unique. I mean, there, there are other good series. What Lou does with Broadway Boxing is a, is a really important investment um, in the sport as well. Um, but in terms of the televised at that level, at that sort of crossroads position, there really isn't anything like it. And, and the reason 
that we've been so active with it in the first part of this year is sort of where the sport as a whole is. Um, and we went through this period where you know, we had um, sort of a corner on a, a large amount of the talent, and we saw some you know, phenomenal years um, in some really good fights, some really good schedule. Now, with more players in the market, more networks and platforms, the talent is a little bit more dispersed. And out of necessity and opportunity, it, it's time to develop even more of the next wave. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've seen some of the guys who are, you know, have stepped up on the verge of stepping up. I'd say Jerron Ennis, Stephen Fulton, um, who was not a showbox uh, guy regularly, but is, is one of the, the young guys that I think is, is going to be making that leap. Um, and we've seen him already once uh, on Showtime. And I think there are younger guys who are interested. I mean, um, Xavier Martinez, who's one of uh, Mayweather Promotions fighter, is a, somebody I think is an exciting young prospect. I think he's only at 11 or 12 fights. Um, a guy like Brandon Lee, obviously. Um, I want to see you know, more of, of Brian Norman and, and Porkchop. Um, mm-hmm. that we saw last weekend. Um, and there's, uh, you know, there, there's guys who are also sort of poised to make the jump, you know, guys like uh, Ruben Villa and, and, and Michael Duckchilver, uh, both of whom are Artie's guys, who I think are, are at that stage as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is, um, you know, while well, we, we'd love to have all the stars with us, um, you know, that's not the reality uh, anymore. Everybody's got... Um, you know, some of the talent, it's widely dispersed. So it, it's on us to, to sort of start pointing out, identifying and delivering to people, you know, the next wave uh, of stars. And, and I think that's, that's really what Showbox um, has consistently done and continues to do. And it's really the only one that, that, that's doing that. Yeah. 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 So moving from those uh, that next wave of stars to the current stars, I wanted to get your take on a, a few Showtime regulars. Uh, we can do this lightning round style, just uh, maybe a, a quick response on, on each. I've got three names for you. Uh, the first one, Clarissa Shields. Do you see her continuing to move up and down in weight in search of challenges? And, and is there anything substantive to the Layla Ali talk? Look, um, I, I've really got to commend her because um, – you know, we knew that at 160, even 168, um, which are which are probably 160 is probably her her natural, most natural weight. Um, you know, she went through. It's not a deep talent pool. There are, are some very good fighters, but it's not a deep division. Um, so she's been willing to sort of up go up and down to seek challenges and and find uh, find competitive matchups. So I give her all the credit in the world. And, you know, going to DeCarey, you know, who's one of the better fighters um, at 54, I think was, was the right move and probably the best opportunity that could realistically be made for her. Um, the Ali thing seems very real. Um, hmm. the, the, the real question is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the financial requirements. And, you know, that, that's, you know, always a, an important part of, of every deal. But I think... Um, I, I think it's, it's real. Certainly, I know from Clarissa, she would love the opportunity, and and everything that that I've heard and read, it seems like a um, realistic possibility from Layla's side. So, um, I I think that's you know that's certainly um, the biggest fight that you can be made. I I don't see the the break this fight um, happening. I, I don't think Clarissa can go beyond 
154. She said that maybe she makes 147, but that's a real, real tough cut for her. All right. Next name is uh, is uh, is Gary Russell. Uh, is this the year he fights more than once, uh, or, or or would it have been? Uh, do you think at least? Um, I, I I think so. I mean, look, there's there's a, a lot of uh, opportunities here. I mean, look, uh, I still sometimes salivate for what might have been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with with sort of Frampton and and Warrington um, over it somewhere where we really can't access them. Um, there's still a lot of talent. It's just widely dispersed. Uh, but I, I do think that Gary is sincere in his desire to um, get a Tank Davis fight or to get a Leo Santa Cruz fight, and I think those are those are the only two things on his uh, on his agenda. Okay, and then you just mentioned uh, the the third guy I wanted to ask you about. Uh, it's a bit of a complicated one, Tank Davis. Uh, what is his present legal situation as you know it, and and just how? personally disappointing and, and frustrating is it when fighters in whom you invest and and about whom you care consistently mess up outside the ring yeah that is um it, it was obviously a very uh, disturbing one uh personally and professionally and um and, and as a general statement it, it's it's often tough to sort of process how someone um that you like um and, and feel like you know can do things that are are so disturbing. So I, I think that um, regardless of, of how much you you like uh, Tank personally or, or like him as a, a fighter, um, you know it was, it was a disturbing um, situation that uh, that occurred. Um, we are letting the, the legal process you know, take its course. You know, uh, there have been a lot of conversations, again, sort of like Showbox, and what is the appropriate uh, response? Um, we're going to, you know, we have a little bit of the luxury of time, and we were, we were sort of waiting to see it play out um, nonetheless. Um, but this is sort of where, um, where, where boxing, you know, has a challenge. Uh, because, you know, the natural place for some sort of disciplinary action would be an organizing body, um, a league. Right. Um, and you know that obviously doesn't exist uh, in boxing, um, and therefore, you know it, it it probably falls to a little bit of a, a square peg in the round hole. People look to the network, um, and that's something that they don't do in other sports. You know, if there's an NFL player who's done something um, strange, no one someone goes after Fox or ESPN with <laughs> yeah, saying you shouldn't be putting the NFL on or you shouldn't be putting the Cowboys on when one of their players misbehaved. Um, look, it's not apples to apples, you know, one's individual, one's a, a team sport. Um, but I think the, the main point is um, it's a little bit strange to be put in the position of, of looking, looking to the TV network to be the disciplinary. <laughs> but that's, you know, so be it, because that's, that's the reality of things. So um, we'll evaluate it and, um, you know, we'll monitor. We haven't said anything publicly um, but certainly doesn't mean that we're not concerned and we're not monitoring it. Sure, sure. Um, almost done, and then we'll let you go back to quarantine. <laughs> um, you personally and, and Showtime you know, developed quite a relationship over the years with Deontay Wilder, um, and it's been a few weeks now, obviously, since that rematch with Tyson Fury, but you know, up until the world caught fire, this, this was still like some, the ripples from that were still um, being talked about a lot. Were you surprised how poorly that rematch went for Deontay and knowing him to the extent that you do 
is she the sort of fighter you expect to be able to handle that kind of defeat mentally and to come back from it? Well, um, I, I, I definitely was surprised. Um, you know, I, I, I was of the mind, I think, that most people that, um, you know, they could uh, fight 10 times and it, it would sort of be a toss-up. Um, mm-hmm. There were points where, you know, I thought the, before the fight where Tyson's boxing might prevail and there were a lot of times that I thought, you know, that as usual, um, he, Wilder would, would find a way to get things done. Um, so, you know, at, at no point did I really realistically expect to go the way uh, it did. It seemed to me that, you know, he lost his equilibrium pretty early, um, mm-hmm. wasn't able to gain it back. And that's a, that's a tough position to be in. I mean, we saw that a little bit with Joshua and Ruiz. Um, is there, there seemed to be a point where, where, where Joshua lost his equilibrium. He gained it back a little bit. He seemed at least for a round. He was steadier, but uh, ultimately, um, I, I don't think he ever quite fully recovered. So, look, that's one of the things about um, heavyweight boxing. I mean, we saw it with Hellenius and, and Konatsky. We you saw it here. Um, you can say somebody's not a power puncher or, you know, um, uh, that, that they, they, you know, have, um, you know, pillow fisted or, or whatever you want to say. But the reality is when you have big guys at 250, 260, um, and, you know, 270 in case, you know, there is always a danger there. And, you know, anybody can get hurt. Um, and that's, what separates you know the, the heavyweight division from anywhere else? Any everybody's at risk at, at any time. So you know, really, the intriguing question about this is, in fact, what the response will be. You know, you guys, we we've talked, and um, not that I certainly ever responded. Uh, I mean, I ever uh, I sort of wanted Floyd Mayweather to lose, but I, I always told you guys the most interesting Mayweather fight would probably be the first one after he loses. Yeah, and. Um, you know, we never crossed that bridge, and and now uh, Deontay is is at that crossroads. Um, knowing him as as I do, uh, I'm confident he's going to respond well. Um, and and I, and I don't think just how neither of the two fights uh, has gone probably the way most people would have predicted. Um, I don't think the third one's going <laughs> to go away. Most people predict either. Uh, it just that's par for the course. Um, you know, just when you think you have the sport figured out or even an individual matchup figured out, you know, something comes along and you realize none of us really knows as much as they think they do. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, let, let's uh, let's end on a fun and positive note since, you know, there have been a lot of serious tones throughout this interview. Uh, we'll, we'll try and uh, pep it up a little here with just a, a random fun boxing history question for you. If you could go back in time and attend any fight ever that you weren't ringside for, what fight would you choose, Stephen? The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount+. Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Um, I think. Uh, and this one's going to be a strange one, but I, I think it, it's really the atmosphere. It's Chavez Haugen mm-hmm. in Mexico. Um, 
and you know, and, and that that probably part of that it wasn't it wasn't you know a great fight. It certainly wasn't a, a you know a a, a great uh, opponent. Um, but you know, this is, is you know my choice is probably inspired a little bit by sort of the the legendary status that fight has within the Showtime hallways. Um, you know, there are from the fact that you know uh, there were. Uh, 132,000 people in attendance uh, in attendance at Azteca Stadium. Um, you know, you had uh, you know Chavez taking the presidential helicopter to to get places. You've got um, Don King showing up and and actually getting robbed uh, on the way from the port to his hotel as soon as he got into town. Um, and it just there's you know there were so many things around that atmosphere um, and. Uh, it, it just was one of those legendary events that I would love to have been there for the atmosphere. Ah, uh, yeah, that would be the irony of Don King being the one getting robbed. That's great, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> hey, and you know what? Let's hope in the not too distant future we're going to get back to a situation where once again we can have these great events with huge crowds and uh, events that people will talk about for all the right reasons for years to come. Uh, thank you, Stephen. It's a strange time, and and so all kinds of strange questions that I never imagined we would have to ask you just a couple of weeks ago. So, no, look, I, I do think in a um, don't want to sound naive or Pollyanna, but um, I, I am excited about the future. Look, we've got a lot of work to do to to get through this thing, but. Um, you know, we're on the verge of some really, really interesting fights. Um, and I think that, that as soon as we're up and going again, I think there'll be a renewed commitment to, to getting those fights to happen. So um, I'm anxious to get back like everyone else is. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Here's looking forward to us having like a big fight week dinner in Las Vegas or something before the, before the year is over. That's right. All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Stephen. All right, guys. Be safe. You too. You too. Thanks, Bye-bye. Stephen. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. All right. Uh, thanks very much to Stephen for joining us. Yeah, you, you know, he is our boss, obviously, or our boss's boss. Um, but uh, I do like the fact that whenever we've had him on, he's been really open and honest with his answers. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I actually really uh, appreciated his explanation of why that showbox card went ahead as well, actually. Yeah. Um, as somebody who used to spend basically the whole fight week on site, I should have better appreciated when we were talking about it last week that the fact that everybody was already there right. would have been a major consideration. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely enjoyed that. Um, so Stephen just talked about how the tail end of the boxing year, when and if this fog lifts, could be a banner spell for boxing. Uh, and indeed, in the midst of all this misery and mayhem, uh, there is a hint of some potential good news. Um, while Canelo Alvarez's scheduled May 2nd bout with Billy Joe Saunders has, of course, been postponed, at least until June, uh, there are reports via The Athletic and ESPN.com, among others, that Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin have finally agreed to fight for a third time, tentatively on Mexican Independence Day weekend in mid-September. Uh, in theory, both men's interim bouts, uh, Alvarez Saunders and Golovkin against Camille Zermata, will take place first on dates that obviously have yet to be determined. Eric, what are your thoughts on the prospect of Canelo Triple G3 finally taking place uh, three years after the first bout, two after the rematch? Um, and this is probably an unfair question to ask, as none of us have a clue about how things are going to unfold over the coming months. But you're the betting man here. So what odds would you give on either or both men 
actually having those interim bouts before they fight each other. Mm, yeah, that, that, that's tough. Um, because it's not that I'm terribly pessimistic about it being possible to stage a fight somewhere in June, um, almost certainly without an audience, but sure. still, June feels like a realistic month for beginning to stage sporting events. But the issue is bringing people together for training and convincing yep. them to go through a full training camp starting in April or May when there's uncertainty about being able to keep a June fight date. That that feels like the big ask, you know, uh, OK, Canelo Saunders, get everyone in your camps tested and then head off to train. Right. But we might tell you two weeks from the finish line. Forget it. Not happening. So th that's tricky. Um, and then you throw in. Nobody wanting to screw up Canelo Triple G3 because one of them finds a way to lose in the interim. Uh, you factor that in and uh, I don't know. I, I'd say no interim fights is actually yeah. about a three to one favorite in my mind. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say I'm over 50-50 optimistic about Canelo Triple G happening in September. Okay. Um, and, you know, while I'm certainly less excited for it than I would have been a year ago, it's still a very good fight. And... Yes, for the first time in their three fights, there's a clear favorite this time, but it's not like Canelo is an overwhelming favorite. Uh, people might be sleeping on Golovkin a little bit here, I think, if, if they're just taking it as a foregone conclusion that Canelo wins this time. So, you know, we'll have a lot more time to analyze it, but my gut reaction is that it's a little later than ideal, but not too late to still make sense and to still potentially be an outstanding fight like their first two were. Yeah, and I think you're probably right at the interim fight. Saunders especially, that's a really dangerous fight. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a tremendous risk if you're really going into Golovkin, unless you're Canelo, unless Canelo just doesn't really care. Right. But <laughs> the Golovkin <laughs> fight happens, which might be the case. But. Right, that's true. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, you know, there, there are quite a few ifs uh, here, but in hmm. theory, we have this to look forward to, Alvarez and Golovkin meeting a third time. And if they hadn't agreed to this third bout, then I think it's safe to say the two fights they've had so far would have landed them very high on the all-time list of excellent two-fight rivalries that for some reason didn't become trilogies, <laughs> uh, which got us to thinking about other rivalries uh, in which the first fight was good enough to prompt a rematch, but that for various reasons did not extend to a third fight. Yes. Yeah, so, of course, there's, there are multiple reasons why a rematch to an exciting or controversial first fight might not prompt a third go-round. Uh, sometimes the rematches are just a lot less interesting than the first fight, or right. an upset in the first fight is corrected in the second. Uh, Lennox Lewis, I mean, basically literally laughed in the face of Haseem Rockman when Rockman asked him for a third fight after right. Lewis KO'd him in their rematch. Um, and not what, notwithstanding what was said in the ring after Anthony Joshua regained his belts from Andy Ruiz, I think most people not named Ruiz, or perhaps even specifically Andy Ruiz, would be perfectly <laughs> happy not to see that matchup again. Um, but... Sometimes both an initial fight and a rematch can be compelling without a third fight ever materializing. And so we came up with a short list of some of the best examples. Uh, and the first one is Sugar Ray Robinson and Carmen Basilio. Uh, they first met on September 23rd, 1957 in Yankee Stadium. Robinson had retired from the ring for three years before coming back in 1955, uh, regaining his middleweight crown from Bobo Olsen, losing it to Gene Fulmer, then winning it back from Fulmer uh, with a fifth-round knockout. Um, and his first fight with Basilio 
it was really a class, a classic clash of styles. You know, Robinson was the outstanding boxer, Basilio, the squat pressure fighter, bobbing and weaving and looking to score on the inside. Uh, after 15 rounds, the judges scored the contest nine rounds to five with one even for Basilio, nine, six, one Robinson and eight, six, one uh, Basilio uh, giving Basilio the title in the ring magazine's fight of the year. Uh, uh, six months later, on March 25th, 1958, they met again. And this time, if anything, the fight was even better. Robinson, happier to exchange on the inside when necessary this time, jolting Basilio with uppercuts, closing his left eye in round six. Uh, the result, once again, was a split decision, this time in the favor of Robinson, who is so exhausted he had to be carried to his dressing room on a stretcher. Uh, this fight, too, would be Ring's fight of the year. Um, but it would prove to be Robinson's last great performance. He would lose his title to Paul Pender. And having started his career, Robinson, Sugar Ray Robinson's career statistics never cease to make me just laugh. <laughs> having started his career 141, 6 and 2, he would finish it 31, 13 and 4. That over, by the way, that final stretch over seven years. He basically mm. put a, a full career in the <laughs> final seven years of his career. Wow. Um, so I, I searched but couldn't find an answer as to why they didn't fight a third time. I suspect that having corrected the upset in the first fight and knowing that Basilio was going to be a tough fight every time, that it was Robinson who was inclined not to give him a rubber match. But I I could be wrong. But uh, it's interesting. There's only one other example in history of two fighters producing the ring fight of the year in both their first fight and their second fight and then not having a third fight. The other one being Gene Tunney and Jack Dempsey. Uh, and, And in that case... Tunney won both fights and Dempsey was getting kind of washed. And and so he retired after their second fight. So that's a real historical anomaly for Robinson and Basilio. Two fights, both fight of the year. They split them. They're tied at 1-1 and there's no third fight. Amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the second rivalry on our list looks at a heavyweight duo from the 1980s. Two controversial fights. No third fight to clear up that controversy. We're talking about Michael Dokes and Mike Weaver. Their first fight was December 10th, 1982. Larry Holmes was the real heavyweight champion at the time, but the alphabet belts had been splintered and Weaver held one of them. And the undefeated Dokes came in and, well, if you can spare 63 seconds from your busy day, (laughs) find this one on YouTube uh, because it was brief, but it was fun. They came out like Hagler and Hearns and I'm not exaggerating, Uh, but about 30 seconds in Dokes dropped Weaver with a left hook. Weaver got up. Dokes poured it on. Weaver was in trouble along the ropes. And after barely a minute of action, referee Joey Curtis separated the fighters and raised Dokes's hand And the crowd immediately started booing and then (laughs) chanting some unpleasant (laughs) words. Uh, This was just one month after Ray Mancini and Duke Kim. And Curtis admitted that tragedy was in the back of his head when he stopped this fight. Now, it's rare that you see an immediate rematch to a KO-1. But because of the controversy of the premature ending, the fighters did it again on May 20th, 1983. And this time, it lasted 14 rounds and two minutes longer. Uh, There was excellent action again. Weaver doing well early. Dokes taking over in the middle rounds. Weaver rallying late. It went the full 15, and it was scored a majority draw. 145 to 141 for Dokes on one card. 144-144 and 143-143. So Dokes retained the title. Why was there no third fight? Dokes said afterwards, quote, this was the toughest fight I ever had. I'll fight anybody as long <laughs> as it isn't Weaver. They'll have to strip my title first. Wow. Wow. Uh, I think one of the uh, 
added to the craziness of that first fight was I think the guy who ended up the most badly hurt was Dokes, right? Because he leapt up and down so excitedly right. after winning it. I don't know what he did. Like he twisted his ankle or something. And one minute he's leaping up and down. Then he's on the canvas. Weaver, the guy who's numb, who's lost, is standing there wondering what on earth has happened. Right. And the guy who supposedly won has everybody crowded around him trying to see if he can get up off the canvas. That was a it was definitely bizarre. You know, it was, it was funny rewatching that. It was it was good to hear, you know, obviously, as you said, the crowd, you know, chanting some unpleasant words. And I thought to myself, it's great that no boxing crowd has ever had to chant that ever since. <laughs> right. No, never. That was <laughs> like, the final controversy in boxing history. Exactly. Um, you have to admire Dokes uh, for just so openly admitting he didn't want any more of Weaver. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of um, Nigel Benn. Uh, I read an interview in in maybe Ring, maybe when you were were you writing for Ring when Nigel Benn was around? Uh, um, just at the very tail end of his career, maybe. Okay. And he said something to the effect of um, that he would fight absolutely anybody in the middleweight or super middleweight divisions, except he said Mike McCallum. Ah. Because I don't want my body snatched, I remember him saying. (laughs) Um, And and talking of Nigel Benn, the next rivalry is one that is actually very close to my heart and to the hearts of British boxing fans of a certain generation. Uh, And it's the rivalry between Benn and Chris Eubank. Uh, Look, British boxing, as we all know, is thriving with stars like uh, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury. But the modern British boxing scene really kicked into high gear with the rivalry between these two uh, middleweights, super middleweights in the 1990s. Um, Prior to their first fight, on November 18th, 1990, Ben had scored knockout wins over Doug DeWitt and Aran Barkley and won an alphabet belt at 160 pounds. Uh, entering the contest, there was legitimate hostility between the two men, uh, not only because of their, their burgeoning rivalry, but they have very different personalities. Uh, mm. Ben was the ex-military, hard-punching, uh, no-subtlety, dark destroyer, while Eubank bizarrely affected an upper-class accent and wore shop suits and monocles. Um, There was no feeling out process when this fight began. Uh, The two men just tore into each other from the start. Uh, Ben landed an uppercut in the fourth that caused Eubank to actually bite uh, in his tongue and slice it open. Mm. Uh, As a result of which, he was was swallowing copious amounts of blood throughout the fight. He didn't tell his corner um, because he was worried that the fight would be stopped. Um, Ben's eye began closing in the fifth. Uh, and that made it uh, hard for him to see Eubank's right hand. And when that right hand landed in the ninth, it set up a barrage of punches that prompted referee Richard Steele to step in and halt what he called, quote, the most dramatic fight I've ever refereed. And coming mm. from Richard Steele, that's quite yeah. something. <laughs> um, the 1993 rematch was at 168 pounds, and it was less spectacular, but it was still 12 rounds of quality boxing uh, with a, a really very good final frame as each man sought to secure the win. Uh, in the event, it was a split decision draw. But while neither man won, in a sense, both did. A Don King co-promoted the bout, and he had an agreement in typical Don King fashion that both the winner and the loser would sign with him. But the contract contained no provision for what would happen if it was a draw. <laughs> so for once, King actually left empty-handed. Um, there was plenty of money on the table for a third fight, but after a couple run-of-the-mill defenses, Ben fought Gerald McClellan. Uh, in a war that, as we all know, left the American permanently disabled and and really rendered Ben a shell of his former self, and his career ended shortly after that. Hmm. Uh, Well, that is a hilarious detail about Don King. Between that and Stephen's story about him getting robbed in Mexico City, it's it's a tough episode for DK. Um, So, time to admit, 
I had never seen these fights before this week. I'd, I'd read about them and I'd seen clips, but never the whole thing. Um, and that's actually still true of the rematch. There's only so much time, even during quarantine. Sure. Uh, but I did watch the whole first fight. And yeah, it was tremendous. And you'll probably not be surprised to learn that I thought Richard Steele jumped in maybe a little quick there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting to look back on that era, all those British middleweights, super middleweights of the 90s, there were so many good two-fight rivalries among them, yes. but no singular defining rivalry necessarily of the era. And maybe Eubank and Ben would have been it if there had been a third fight. But instead, it's just kind of this big mix of Eubank, Ben, Steve Collins, Michael Watson, sort of bleeds into Joe Calzaghe a bit as this one great era. Should you ever set foot outside of the motel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow, now streaming on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. Uh, so if that one was close to your heart as a Brit, uh, this next one is close to my heart as a half Mexican, half Nicaraguan. Uh, OK, maybe not. Uh, but uh, as a still fairly new boxing fan in the late 90s, I was enthralled by the two fight rivalry of Ricardo Lopez and Rosendo Alvarez. Their first fight was March 7th, 1998. And Finito Lopez came in as a big favorite because the long-reigning strawweight champion was 47 fights into his pro career and had never come very close to losing, really hadn't been tested much at all. So it was assumed that this fellow belt holder from Nicaragua, Alvarez, though undefeated, had no chance. Instead, he shocked everyone, especially Lopez, by knocking Finito down in the second round, something nobody had done before. And he built an early lead, but Lopez was coming back when a clash of heads ended the fight prematurely in round eight, sending it to the cards, where it was scored a technical draw, 68-63 for Alvarez, 67-64 for Lopez, and 66-66. I thought the draw was reasonable. Some thought Alvarez still should have been ahead, but either way, the fight had not reached its natural conclusion, so they signed up to do it again on Showtime on November 13th, 1998. And that rematch remains quite possibly the greatest strawweight fight ever, Uh, although you could dispute whether it was technically a strawweight fight since Alvarez didn't make weight and wasn't eligible to win the belts at that weight. Uh, You could tell from the start that Alvarez's success in the first fight was no fluke. He was causing all sorts of problems for Lopez. He was bigger and stronger. His punches were really marking Lopez up. But Finito dug deep in a way no other opponent had forced him to, and really boxed and fought his ass off. This was one of those all-time fights in terms of great action, but also both guys competing at an elite skill level. After 12 grueling rounds, Lopez won by split decision, 116-112, 116-114, and 115-113 the other way, and they did not fight a third time. Lopez fought just three more times and retired undefeated and became a first ballot Hall of Famer, whereas Alvarez won more titles and remained a championship-level fighter for about another eight years until he got stopped by Jorge Arce at age 35 in a fight in which it was clear he didn't have it anymore. And to me, this rivalry feels a little like Dokes Weaver in that Lopez escaped both fights without a loss and knew he'd met his match and was happy to find different opponents. 
Yeah, I mean, not that there was really any doubt about uh, Benito Lopez's greatness going into this fight, but in a way, this was the rivalry that sort of confirmed it, especially the rematch, wasn't it? Because it's we always say we want to know what a fighter is going to do when he really has to dig deep, when he mm-hmm. really has to be tested. And so often he'd been so obviously superior to his opponents that that, that was one element that was not always very clear from his resume, and I think right. he showed that. But I think you're right. I think that... Um, it does have shades of Dokes Weaver about it. And the other thing that it sort of makes you think of is a little bit of Ali Norton, right? They say mm-hmm. that everybody has a Ken Norton. Right. Everybody has that guy out there who gives them fits. And, um, you know, Ali Norton could easily have gone 3-0 and against Ali instead of 1-2. and mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I agree with you. Lopez was smart enough to know that uh, he didn't need to give him that third fight <laughs> right. and didn't particularly want to either. Um, the final rivalry here uh, actually... Seemingly contrary to the premise by which this list is set up, actually did lead to a third fight. Well, the way it <laughs> right. um, It is Diego Corrales versus Jose Luis Castillo. Uh, we really don't need to say too much, of course, about that epic first fight at the Mandalay Bay on May 7th, 2005. Although we may end up discussing it some more sometime over the next few weeks. Um, suffice to say... It is inarguably one of the greatest fights ever seen in a boxing ring. Um, a battle so brutal and violent that I remember uh, in the media room afterward, promoter Gary Shaw said there was no way these two men could be allowed to fight each other again because they'd kill each other. I mean, and, and, and at that time, it was said with true meaning, but it's boxing. And so not only did they meet again, it was just five months later. Um, once more in Las Vegas, uh, and this time at the Thomas Mack Center. However, whereas this bout, like the first, was contracted at lightweight, Castillo missed weight badly, weighing in at 138 pounds. In fact, at the first weigh-in, he weighed in at 137 and a half, went away to lose weight, and came back heavier. Um, and it actually turned out that one of his corner men had been lifting up the scale with his toe uh, when he had first weighed in. Um, the fight went ahead anyway. Um, but Corrales fought poorly to go with the advantage that Castillo had of not having drained himself so much, and Castillo knocked him out in the fourth round. Uh, A rubber match was scheduled for June 4th, 2006, but this time Castillo weighed in even heavier at 139.5 pounds, and this time Corrales and his team refused to go ahead. Uh, Corrales would not win another fight, and on May 7th, 2007, exactly two years after their first fight, died in a motorcycle accident. So you, you said Corrales fought poorly in the rematch, and I guess he did, but that's just not how I remember it at all, because all I remember is that he was in against a big, strong guy who hadn't drained himself yeah. making weight, and it, and it was just clear from the start that Castillo's punches were doing damage in a way they hadn't quite in the first fight. Um, but also, I, I recall that rematch providing excellent action for the short time it lasted, that it, it's kind of a shame Chico couldn't take the punches, because it might have become another exactly. classic otherwise, exactly. right? Yeah, Diego um, was his own worst enemy at times, really, with the way he fought. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, yeah, th- this is a-, a unique case, though, where there's a very specific reason why the rubber match didn't yep. happen. So, yeah. Uh, so those are our top five of these rivalries. But there are, are plenty of other contenders that we could have included. We thought about Bobby Chacon versus Cornelius Boza Edwards and Jose Luis Ramirez versus Edwin Rosario. Uh, and we could have considered others such as Matt Franklin, Marvin Johnson, or even Franklin, who by this time was fighting as Matthew Saad Muhammad against Yaki Lopez. Although in both of those cases, Saad Muhammad won the first two right. fights. So as great as there were, there wasn't anything to clarify with a third fight. Um, and not every third fight, even after a memorable and or controversial first and second fights, 
is worth having. Case in point, the rivalry of Sugar Ray Leonard versus Roberto Duran. Their first fight was an all-timer with Duran moving up, Sugar Ray fighting the wrong fight, and Duran scoring almost certainly the greatest win of his career. The rematch, of course, the famous No Mas fight with Leonard outboxing Duran into a frustrated submission. Those fights happened in quick succession, five months apart in 1980. They waited until 89 for the rubber match, and by then, Duran was 38, Leonard was 33, and it was dreadfully dull. One of the all-time most disappointing super fights, uh, and a reminder that maybe we're lucky some of these great rivalries ended at two fights. Yeah, and uh, another rubber match that really did not come even close to matching the first two uh, was Brandon Rios, Mike Alvarado, 3. Uh, the first two fights, 140 pounds, were classics. Uh, Rios went winning the first in October 2012 by seventh round TKO. Alvarado winning the second in March 2013 by unanimous decision. Uh, the rubber match was set for Alvarado's hometown of Broomfield, Colorado on January 24th, 2015. But since winning the rematch, Alvarado had lost to Ruslan Provodnikov and Juan Manuel Marquez. And during fight week, there were rumors that Alvarado had only been training seriously for a couple of weeks and that he was facing a possible imprisonment for violating bail by being found in possession of a firearm. And whereas two people entered the ring that night, only one of them came in any kind of fighting shape. Uh, Rio's absolutely battering Alvarado over three rounds, at the end of which the fight was stopped. Even Alvarado's own hometown fans booed not just his lack of effort, but the fact that in the post-fight interview, he just said, yeah, I didn't train. Right. I honestly forgot that that third fight even happened. I swear good. to God, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Yes, good. But uh, yeah, well... Uh, I have only two Godfather it. movies, too. Remember <laughs> right. that. <laughs> the thing is that uh, I had forgotten it, and then uh, and then you uh, mentioned it planning out the show, so uh, damn you for reminding me. Yeah, that's right. Third fight happened. Yeah. All right. uh, okay, a couple more news items besides the Canelo Triple G news uh, to talk about before we go. First of all, there is a bit of a controversy brewing in Britain over new allegations concerning Tyson Fury and his cousin Huey testing positive for Nandrolone in 2015. The two men eventually received a two-year backdated ban from UK anti-doping in 2017, partly because they claimed the positive samples were the result of their eating the meat of uncastrated wild boars. Better than eating bats, I guess. That's a, that, that's a very Ron Swanson <laughs> kind of thing to say, actually, talking to Ron Swanson. As you... Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, the, the whole thing, uh, vegetarianism for the win here, I think. Right, <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so uh, now the farmer who claimed at the time that he had sold them that meat now says that, in fact, he hadn't, that he has never even raised wild boar, and that he was offered money to claim that he had provided the meat and was speaking out now because that money was never paid. There has been some speculation in the UK media that this could lead to the case being reopened and Tyson Fury possibly facing further punishment. Any insight on all this, Kieran? I, I don't really quite know what to make of it, really. I mean, from a distance... I find the way that UCAD works, at least in boxing circles, to be a bit strange and unconvincing. That, that the whole business with Dillian White and Oscar Rivas still feels weird. Mm. Um, uh, and the whole Fury drug situation was was really shrouded in secrecy and was sort of talked about in hushed tones while Fury was, was out of the ring and dealing with his mental health issues. Um, I have read that part of the reason UCAD came to the settlement, for want of a better phrase, with the Furies was that it was concerned about the impact on its finances of getting into a protracted legal case with them. Um, 
Fury's UK promoter, Frank Warren, has been quick to cast aspersions on the character of this farmer, uh, noting that he is definitively a liar. Either he lied in the affidavit to UCAD or he's lying now. Um, So I don't know. It is notable that nobody else associated with the Fury camp has publicly said even a word about it. Um, You know, the farmer himself claims that since he went public, he's had some unsettling late night visits. Some one way or the other, there's something very fishy here. Um, but if you want to feel that maybe something is going to come out of this, uh, and that maybe the case will be reopened, and maybe there may be some kind of punishment, um, I introduced to you the statement of coronavirus expert Mauricio Suleiman, um, <laughs> who immediately praised Fury as his alphabet belt organization's champion and said, There's nothing to see here, we love him. You know, or the fact that Fury is co-promoted by Top Rank, who last year signed Jarrell Miller to a contract, even though he doesn't even have a license to fight anymore because anywhere because he failed three tests for one fight. So um, I don't know what the truth is here. It's all very strange. Um, but I also think it's highly unlikely that any of this is going to disrupt Fury Wilder 3 or Fury Joshua. Uh, I would probably put money, if there is something here, I wouldn't be surprised if this investigation takes just... As much time as is needed for the results to come through, Justice Fury announces his retirement. <laughs> there you go. That's that's a possibility. Now, right. has has the farmer issued the exact quote yet? Yesterday I was lying. Today I'm telling the <laughs> truth. Has he said that yet? That would that would be perfect. Right. There you go. That would be perfect. But it was quite funny. Apparently, so the newspaper that's really been pushing this, the Mail on Sunday, um, uh, just this this most recent Sunday, you know, sort of published correspondence. It's clear that. The lawyer who is arguing the Fury's case was unconvinced by this farmer. Like he was trying to get evidence that this guy had actually supplied boar. And he says, you know, can you provide us with photographs? And the guy just provides photographs of wild boar. And he goes, yeah, can you provide photographs of you with the wild boar? <laughs> and, that this is, and then he just provides him some more photographs. And the lawyer writes back and goes, these are actually pigs. Do you? I'm coming to your farm. Right. And, and the farmer was saying he was starting to freak out. And then the settlement came down before anything else had to be dealt with. And he was like, wow, I kind of dodged a bullet here. Mm. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, finally, some sad news. Roger, the black Mamba Mayweather, died on March 17th, age 58. Uh, Mayweather was the lineal 130-pound champ from 1983 to 84, held a 140-pound strap from 87 to 89. But he was best known, at least to a later generation of boxing fans, as the uncle and trainer of Floyd Mayweather Jr., as well as the coiner of the far too often used puts down, <laughs> you don't know shit about boxing. Um, as a fighter, Mayweather was strong of fist and weak of chin, making him a very popular TV fighter. Uh, as a trainer, he was an always colorful and uh, sometimes controversial character. Eric, your thoughts on the passing of Uncle Roger? Yeah, obviously it's sad, uh, although Roger was no angel, uh, but he he was certainly an entertaining character both during and after his boxing career. Um, And I've seen a lot of people this week say, damn, he was my favorite Mayweather. There's been a lot of that going around. I personally lean towards Jeff Mayweather because totally there's no contest. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's always struck me as a much more decent person than any of his more famous boxing relatives. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, Roger was an outstanding fighter, the, the second best 
fighter of all the Mayweathers. Yeah. Um, and we knew he was in poor health for a while. We yeah. heard sad stories several years ago about him being confused and walking many miles home alone. Um, so th- this was by no means a shocking report of his death, but it's sad just the same. And, um, uh, We'll have more to say about Roger in the weeks ahead. Uh, you, you said you said the same thing about Corrales Castillo. Uh, we're working on some plans for April podcasts. Yep. We won't say too much yet, but memories of Roger Mayweather definitely figure into those plans. Yeah, indeed so. All right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week, uh, continuing to operate in the new normal, and we will be opening up the mailbag. So... If you have something you would like to ask, please tweet us uh, either at Eric Raskin or Kieran Mulvaney or both uh, with the hashtag AskShowPod. That's A-S-K-S-H-O-P-O-D. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind and be well.